Welcome back, Warriors. Quayneen Deloise Pam Palmiter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about their experiences on the front lines of Indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. Today's podcast is with one of my favorite people who is never afraid to address any controversial issue, including the one on pretendians. So stay tuned. You definitely don't want to miss this podcast. Welcome back to the Warrior Life Podcast. You are all in for an amazing episode today. We have with us none other than one of my favorite peeps, Dr. Kim Tallbear. She's a professor in Native Studies at the University of Alberta. She's the CRC, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Society. She's an internationally renowned author and expert on issues related to everything about Native peoples, identities, and things like colonial concepts of race and the ways in which science and tech interacts with our conceptions of society. She has many publications, but some of my favorites are her book, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and the False Promise of Genetic Science, a foundational book in Native studies, and also her article, DNA, Blood, and Racializing the Tribe, both of which I have relied on extensively. And of course, she has a ton of publications. You can go find them on kimtallbear.com, but she also has another website. And we'll be talking about that in a minute. And I can't forget to say, she is also a, I was going to say panelist, but I guess he, she's supposed to be called a round tabler because it's on Rick Harp's Media Indigena, one of my favorite podcasts. And I just listened to their most recent podcast on Pretendians, and it was just phenomenal. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Kim. Hi, Pam. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, I'm just so pumped to get into this because I have been monitoring social media like we all do when controversial issues come up, especially on the issue of pretendians. And there has been so much misinformation and misunderstandings of the issue and a mixing of issues that I thought, you know what, we need to get you back on because you were on before talking about the issue of pretendias and things like that to really sort out the mess that this creates and the confusion, both like amongst Native people, but also in society who are watching this all unravel on social media. But before I do that, I always want to give people an opportunity to introduce themselves and where they're from in the way that they like to. I am, as you said, I'm a professor at the University of Alberta and the Faculty of Native Studies. We are the only faculty, we're not a department in North America of Indigenous Studies. And I am a citizen of the Sisseton Wapitan Oyate, which is a Dakota nation in South Dakota. Let's see what I also, I'm the, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather was Shine in Arapaho, which is where the name Tall Bear comes from. And I'm from the U.S and I've been in Canada for seven and a half years now. 
That's amazing. It doesn't even seem that long. Like I, I was following your work when you were in the United States because this fictional border that divides us, we're all one big family. But, you know, to say that you've been here for seven years, it just, I guess time's flying by really fast and you're just yeah. doing phenomenal work. You're all over mainstream media, indigenous media, talking about everything under the sun. And you have a lot of supporters out there and fans who really appreciate not only that you address these issues, but that you don't shy away from the ones that are a little bit more controversial, so to speak. Yeah. And you know, the one on yeah. is one of those. Yeah, I do get private messages of support quite a lot, which really helps because a lot of what's out on social media is mostly ad hominem attacks. So I don't, I don't really, I don't name call. I usually try to, whenever I have a critique, I have an analysis. I don't just yeah. say something's wrong or bad. I have reasons why. Yeah. And often the people that are super detracting of you on social media don't have a response that's analytical. It's just an ad hominem attack against you. So I try to ignore them. Yeah. And I learned that over time. You d in the beginning, a long time ago, I was like, oh, this is just devastating and it breaks your mm -hmm. heart and you think, what am I doing wrong? But now when you actually look at the kinds of comments that you get, at least from, say, haters or trolls or user one, two, three, four, five, they're not actually responding in substance, like you said, to what it no. is you're talking about. They'll just say, you're a racist or who are you or like insults yeah. and things like that. Not really anything of substance. So I never, ever respond to that. Might mm -hmm. respond to the issue that they're talking about, but not to them, like, I'm never going to give a platform to racist trolls, haters, and people who advocate violence. And the funny thing, and I don't know about you, but sometimes it doesn't matter what I post. I could say, today is a beautiful day. Here's a picture of my dog. And I'll get like a hate. I know. <laughs> so I'm I like, know. <laughs> it's kind of suspicious. <laughs> but anyway, the things I wanted to talk about today is the issue that you and I know very well. Some people don't, but you've been... Uh, on the media recently talking about the issue of pretendism. Now, sometimes people call that, I guess in the old days, they were called wannabes or fakes. I guess there's a newer word called a fatee if you're a fake Métis. I guess there's more. Oh, I haven't heard that one in a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. and tons of hashtags for it. But Media Indigena also just released a, a, a phenomenal episode where you and was it Cassie? That was on there? It was Can Candace Collison at UBC oh, in the School of Journalism. Yeah, yeah. And Rick, and talking about this whole issue. And it's just really good because you dig into some of the misconceptions about it. But for those for those who've never heard about this issue, because not just Native people who listen to this podcast, can you mm -hmm. explain a little bit about what it means to be a pretendian or a wannabe or a fatey? Yeah, there's so much terminology, right? There's race shifter that applies to some people, oh, yeah. not all people that claim undocumented and unsupportable native ancestry. We use the term self-indigenization. So it, there's a long history, actually, much longer than people might think, of people claiming to be native or indigenous or Cree or Cherokee or whatever moniker they take on, absent any documentable ancestry. And in fact, what we've seen in recent cases and relatively recent, I'd say 25 to 30 years of cases that have been uncovered, is that there has been extensive 
research into people's genealogies. And this has, of course, made it's easier to go deeper and faster on the genealogical research after the internet and the advent of Ancestry.com, because people all over the world are putting all of their genealogical records online in searchable databases. And so what we see is not only that people, a lot of people who are making these unsupportable claims have no documentable native ancestry, they actually, it's, it's, genealogists can trace their ancestral lines quite extensively and show, in fact, who all of their ancestors are. So it's not only a lack of information about native genealogy, it's a preponderance of information about other kinds of ancestral backgrounds. And we have a lot of people, and this has been documented by multiple scholars, anthropologists, and historians who have claimed to be native, absent any real supportable claims for hundreds of years. But we really see this ramp up, I would say, in the 20th century as Native people become, after, frankly, after genocide and massacres and removal and, and the decimation of Native populations, you might have a reduction of up to 90% of Indigenous populations in the Americas. And it suddenly becomes easier in the 20th century for non-Indigenous people to make these kinds of claims. And so they'll do that for various reasons. I think this kind of spate of pretendian or race-shifting or self-Indigenization claims of late have focused in the media and in the research by people who are combating it on people that are monetized it or making a lot of money, getting opportunities, getting a voice and a platform as Indigenous people, which can really harm actual Indigenous people. So those are kind of the cases that have been the focus in the media of late, not just some grandma sitting in rural Alabama who's saying she's part Cherokee. It, th those are not the kind of people being focused on in these recent cases. I'm really glad you raised those two facts because we're not just talking about a handful of individuals in powerful positions. This is like thousands of people in Canada and the United States who you'll hear, oh, my great grandmother had high cheekbones, so that makes me Cherokee, or they attend a powwow and say, hey, I'm Mi'kmaq too, and they can't say who they're related to. So that's yeah. not just, there's lots of that going on, but oh, then yeah. there's, oh, yeah. there's also the people who, like you said, monetize it and sometimes weaponize it because as you mm -hmm. already mentioned Dr. Daryl LaRue his book on focuses on race shifting sometimes white nationalist organizations all of a sudden become mm -hmm. Métis groups with the purpose of fighting against First Nation rights so yeah. sometimes people think of it as just an individual thing but there can be whole groups and organizations trying mm -hmm. to weaponize or monetize that and yeah. uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I don't think people really understand like what you were saying about how that this isn't just a recent phenomenon, uh, like because people just haven't been paying attention. I think that's the problem because we've been talking about it, like you said, for hundreds of years. Why do you think that people are only paying attention to this now. It's, that's hard for me to say because I grew up, I've known, we called them wannabes in the 70s. Yeah. I'm born in the late 60s. I don't remember a time when I didn't know this was an issue. I've always known it's an issue, always. So it's hard for me to put my place in the shoes of people who are just coming to cognizance that this is an issue. I do think it's getting, for a long time, it was so hard to speak about it. I remember as a child or a young person, my elders whispering about wannabes. So I grew up between a reservation community and a very, very relatively densely populated urban native community in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And, um, Usually in my childhood, I don't remember any of the quote unquote wannabes, people making these false claims that everybody knew weren't really true. 
I don't remember them getting a lot of overtaking our voices because there were so many more of us. So I think, and I've run into this talking to people back home in South Dakota living on the reservation now, they're like, well, we feel sorry for them. It's pitiful, right? But they're not overtaking actual Indigenous voices when you're in a Native community. And I think that's a bit of a difference when you're out in the in academia or in Hollywood or in, in political circles in Ottawa or D.C. and you've got people taking up these voices, they get a really large platform and it can drown out the voices of actual Native people. You know, maybe that's why, and with the advent of the internet, but it just, it's very hard to speak about these things. You see the kinds of trolling that people like me and others go through, the kind of uh, maligning on social media that we endure. I get personal messages from women, it's almost always Indigenous women, who say, thank you, I get bullied, I don't want to risk losing my job. Mm -hmm. my, I've even heard from somebody who said their children got bullied because yeah. she was calling out a very well-known pretendian. So I can't remember where I was going with that. But We're just talking about like why it's only getting attention now and that... It, um, yeah, and I think it takes more voices coming in, being willing to speak up on this for others to get the courage. And so I try to be generous with people who haven't had the courage. Sometimes I see people that are as well placed as me not having the courage to do this. And I'm not so generous feeling towards them. But I keep that to myself, like in terms yeah, of yeah. I don't, I'm not going to go out and create discord, but I'm like, hmm. yeah. but for yeah. people that are not as safe as I am, luckily and financially, and, and in terms of my sense of where I come from and who I am, I understand their reluctance. And I really appreciate though, when they send me those words of support and saying, look, I can't be out front. And I appreciate that the mm -hmm. people that are. Yeah. And I think that's important because when we talk about any Indigenous issue, sometimes there's this blanket expectation that we're all going to be the public figure. We're all going to be the critical analyst. We're all going to be the public advocate or the people on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And that's just not possible for everyone for a whole host of reasons. But like you say, think about an untenured faculty who yeah. needs that job to feed their family or they're a single mother or something. I would never in a million years expect yeah. them to, or to an, risk an aspiring actor, right? Like you've got <laughs> actors in the television and film industry whose careers wow. can really be destroyed by go going. And I also don't like this attention policing that happens. We have this and this going on in our communities. Why are we focused on this? All of yeah. these issues are related. They're all entangled. I'm working on a paper that's going to really deeply look into that. But also we all have, we're all drawn to different issues. We have different talents and different foci. And it mm -hmm. takes all of us working together on different front lines to, to tackle all of the issues Indigenous peoples have to tackle. I do not expect everybody else to tackle this. And likewise, I don't work on all of those other issues. I work on yeah. what I work on. You work on what you work on. And there's no need for us to tear each other down or say yeah. my work's more important than yours or your work's more important than mine. I can't stand that kind of attention policing. And it's really ramped up on social media around this issue. Especially around this issue. And I noticed that this is anecdotal. I don't have the proof or anything, but I've traveled across the country, worked with lots of different First Nations. And I find in urban areas like, say, Winnipeg, where everyone in downtown Winnipeg is native. That's, you're not going to find a whole lot of people who would successfully go into a place of employment and try to be a pretendian. I'm sure there's some. Whereas where I'm from in the Maritimes, we're so few in number because yeah. of the historic scalping bounties mm -hmm. that anyone and everyone claims to be Mi'kmaq. And they all perpetuate this myth that we're all intermarried. And we know that's not the case. But it's easier for them to get mm -hmm. in those situations. Mm -hmm. And I also think in academia, 
if there's no other native people there, because that's still mm-hmm. the situation in some places, it's a lot easier to not be yep. held to account. Yep. I don't have to, it's not that we don't have that at the University of Alberta. We have had some cases, but I don't have to deal with that nearly as much here as I had to deal with it in all the U.S. universities I've been in. And it's part of the reason I came up here. I'm tired of dealing with that and having colleagues who are being dishonest about who they are and where they come from. It's it's like a waste of time. (laughs) Especially if the institution won't deal with it. It's my biggest frustration because we all know who is a pretending and who isn't. And then you have to wonder, why are you not dealing with those institution? Is it because they're your advisor and you, and they just happen to be giving you the advice you want to hear and drowning out the people who are offering the critique? There's no indigenous people in leadership positions in those institutions and they, and non-indigenous people really don't get it. They just don't get it. We And it is a chicken and egg problem. We need Indigenous people in positions of leadership within our institutions in order to deal with this problem. But how do you get them there when you've got people who don't know how to hire and work with actual Indigenous people? As we said on our Media Indigenous podcast that we released this week, settlers want a white Indian, basically. They want the Indian who's not an Indian. I'm going to use the vernacular and the colloquial mm-hmm. language here, the archaic language, but that's what they want. They want people that look like them, act like them, talk like them. That's what they're comfortable with. And so they have very little incentive, not to mention their lack of connections in Indigenous community. They don't know how our rules of belonging work, both the formal rules of governance and the informal rules of community and kinship. They just have no idea. And I see this by the questions they ask me. They are it's so uninformed. I am like, where do I begin with explaining this to you? Nothing. It's really oh, I- hard. Exactly. So not only do they look and act and just echo what they're saying in the institutions, what gets me is that the institution accepts them in part because of that, but in part also because of this racist ideology of what makes a real Indian. Oh, Mm -hmm. I was dirty as a kid. I was dirt poor. I was abused by my parents. Like I was in residential schools and none of those things might even be true, especially when you talk to the families and they're like, what? Mm -hmm. What are they saying about us? But it's never someone who's, oh yeah, my parents were very successful and I did very well. And I'm Mm saying, it's it's always the racist stereotype. Not to say that's not the case in some situations, but why do they always go to the racist stereotypes? Because it's all they know. And so this is one of the ways in which I think those of us who grew up, and I don't mean only mean connected within our particular tribe or First Nation or Métis community, connected across what we call Indian country in the U.S. I don't only know people in the Sistanwapton Oyate, and I don't only know, I know Anishinaabe people in the Twin Cities. I've worked with tribes all over the country. If you tell me you're from Cherokee Nation, I'm going to start asking you, do you know someone? We do that all the time. And And we will always, within a couple of name drops, find people we know in common. And when people refuse to talk on that level, when they seem uncomfortable, when they don't know anybody, and if they don't fully disclose and say, oh, yeah, my mom left there and I grew up in Cleveland. And if they're if they shy away from those attempts to connect, um, that's how we can tell. Right. So it's it's really important that we be able to engage in these conversations about who knows who and who do you know? Wh- what are your community networks? Right. That's one of the ways in which we are able to figure out pretty quickly if somebody might be being dishonest. Well, I'm so glad you raised that because think about all of these people. So set aside just the random Joe Blow, J- Jane Doe, but think about the people that are in occupying positions of power or influence or something like that. 
taking up our places, spaces, and voices. People like Joseph Boyden, Michelle Latimer, Carrie Barassa, Mary Ellen Trapalafon, but also people in the U.S. like Liz Hoover and Sasheen Littlefeather. These are very significant positions. And I feel like the public has, in some sense, hung their ideology about them and what they represent or what makes an Indian on those people. And then they are just absolutely shocked when they find <laughs> out that this person is a pretendian where most of the communities knew all along yep. that they were a pretendian. Yep. And I know we've talked about this before, but can you explain why our communities aren't shocked by this? but the public is. Yeah, I've and I'm not even on the Liz Hoover case. I'm not Mohawk, but I know Mohawks because <laughs> I circulate through Indian country. I've worked for <laughs> tribal organizations and tribal governments and federal agencies that work with the tribes. I've heard from a couple of Mohawks. I knew for yeah. years, for years. So when you're connected, you and people... Yeah, I, I, people, obviously, tribal communities are not that big, usually, unless you're Navajo Nation, but even, even as huge as Navajo Nation is, people know each other, and they know people who know people, even in the size of that nation, you're going to find somebody in two minutes that you know in common. I don't think non-natives understand we know each other, I guess, because they have no history of living within an Indigenous community, how some, usually how small they are, how interconnected they are, and even, again, across different communities, we're really interconnected, so I, it shocks me their level of surprise. But again, I, it's hard for me to get in their shoes. I was going to say something else too. I forgot a point earlier. These, it's true that we have these histories of trauma, right? We all have mm -hmm. histories of substance abuse somewhere in our extended families or mm -hmm. residential school survivors. But we also have these really profoundly moving, funny, inspiring things in our families and actual native people don't just focus on the trauma. They'll, you'll hear other kinds of stories about their lives. And that also helps you as another native person to recognize where they're coming from. And, but if you're a, somebody who's making up stories, these are the kinds of things that are not in the media, that they're not part of the stereotype. Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah. They don't know how to make a nuanced lie. Their lies are very unnuanced. And we all, and we can see it when we've been around Indigenous people of many different kinds of backgrounds. We were like, okay. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> I almost have some like really good stories I could share, but I'm just... <laughs> There's red flags. Like I made a spoof TikTok and I just wore a whole bunch of feathers and a whole bunch of like medicine bags. And I just talked about spirituality or I always knew I was Indian. Like all of these red flags are, it's almost like a stereotype that's real. Just have a piece of paper and check off all of the red flags and go, yep, pretendian, real, pretendian, real, just by, they use the same things over and over. And related to that is the confusion around it. And I would say not so much confusion in our communities, although sometimes, but in the public and how they respond to it. So for example, if you look at the latest case, Mary Ellen Trapelafond, and the people that are defending her, they're defending her on the basis of she's a good person and she's mm -hmm. done good work for Native people. That doesn't address the pretendian issue. And it could be her or it could be anyone else, but anyone high profile defends a high profile mm -hmm. pretendian. The response is less about the fraud or alleged fraud and more about but they're a good person. They employ people or they've done great things. And can you talk a little bit about how that just muddies the waters of what's really happening? So people just think we're needlessly attacking good people. As I've said in other places, 
you don't need to lie in order to work well with Indigenous people. We have plenty of people that are non-Indigenous that work with our communities and for our communities that do really great work. We've got four non-Indigenous faculty in our Faculty of Native Studies. We're mostly Indigenous faculty, but we do have some non-Native faculty, and they are great researchers, and they work really ethically and do important work with Indigenous communities and on Indigenous-related topics. I just don't buy that you need. Those lies matter. I think there's also this kind of white savior thing going on, too. And I've uh, obviously read a lot of the media around Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond, and not only her sense of white saviorism that's coming through, but the the sense of the Canadian media promoting this kind of, it's almost like she had a halo on her head. What's really, we get into this in the, in the, in the podcast, it's shocking, but it's not shocking because there is white saviorism is at the heart of the colonial project kill the Indian, save the man. So kill yeah. the Indian, the drunk, the impoverished, the dysfunctional, and save this glowing civilized being that is possible <laughs> as the racial ideology that worked on Native people, right? There's a particular form of raci racial ideology that it attempts to save the man and, or the woman and kill the Indian inside them. And yeah. And you think about this particular one, that it's not one of those of these scenarios, you can do some investigation, genealogies, talk to people, but this story by CBC was months and months and months in the making. Not only did they do the research, they double checked and triple checked and talked of to course. people. And like, she's a lawyer and she's a former judge. And so yeah. I think the normal reaction would be a lawyer is not going to lie and certainly not a judge. They wouldn't lie. Well, yeah, yes, they will. We've seen that. But also I think and I there's something deeper going on. I think in many cases, the people making these claims have convinced themselves that they are true. And they might have done that as an individual making the claims over and over again, or that they're true enough that it's okay to make them. I think there have sometimes been multi-generational lies. I'm not sure that I've seen any evidence that's the case mm -hmm. with Mary Ellen Trapelafond, but I've known other cases where they have made these claims based on intergenerational lies in their families. I know genealogists have indigenous genealogists have uncovered this when they're looking into particular individuals who are making claims to be of a particular tribe that they can see in the record multi-generational generational lies in order to get land and access to native resources. So I do think in many cases, people really believe the lies and they want to believe them. And they have invested a lot of their self-actualization self and sense of self in those lies. Sometimes I think people are just lying. But I do think, and people have been raising this issue more and more, I'm really interested to see eventually, and I know the ethics of this are very delicate, but I'm interested to see researchers in psychology take on these issues. What's going on? What? Because I really feel like there's a sense of mass delusion among many Americans, and I'll speak because that's where I'm coming from in the U.S., that they can make claims to being Cherokee, to being, this happens in Virginia too. I'm descended, I swear, half of Virginia thinks they're descended from Pocahontas, oh, <laughs> knowing Jesus. nothing about her in that history and what Elizabeth Warren did. I cannot drive through the South. My co-parent lives in Virginia. I used to live in Texas. I would drive through the South all the time to get to Virginia. And I show my, my ID and they're like, oh, tall bear, my ancestor, I'm part Cherokee. I'm part Blackfoot. I'm part this. Apache's the other one that comes up a lot. And I just can't move through my day driving through the South of the U.S. without hearing these kinds of claims. They're just outlandish when people say a little bit about who they are and where they come from. They just can't possibly they're really very likely not true. So what is that? 
Because those are not people that are making any money off it, right? Mm -hmm. Cersei Sturm talks about that in her book, Becoming Indian. You've got, she's done a deep anthropological study. Daryl LaRue has done a a study. Mm -hmm. You've got Phil Deloria doing Playing Indian, who's looking at the historical record back to the Revolutionary War, why people want to play Indian. So there's something much deeper that's about settler nationalism going on and the need to usurp the identity of of the indigenous person in order to feel that one belongs to this land, in order to feel like one can morally make claims. Well, people don't want to feel complicit in violent settler colonialism and in indigenous genocide. And one of the ways not to feel complicit is to claim to be us. It's a final act of replacement. I'm working yeah. on an article that's talking about this, but I definitely think we need some psychological research. And I don't know how you, I don't know what the difference is between mass delusion and individual yeah. kinds of problems. I'd be fascinated to see that. You know, in all the discussions I've heard, people like us talking about what is this? There's people who maybe their parents told them, oh, your great granny was native family lore thing. So they just, without question, just assume that and perpetuate it. Maybe they believe it. Then there's people who say it and really want it to be true. And then when you tell a lie so often, like you're just saying, you come to that's your lie and you believe it. And then I think there's other people who assert it in the hopes that no one will know. And then they back themselves into such a corner. Even though they know it's not true, they have to justify it, minimize it, deflect, do whatever they can without coming out and saying, I lied. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I should never have done that. Because I could respect yeah. that. Yeah, but yeah, I can't totally. Respect the, oh, it's not my fault or the many of the things that the people do. It's I'm agree with you. I really think there should be a study about that and also how people react to it. So then there's mm-hmm. Canadians and Americans, how they react, if they react at all. But then there's how we react to it, because for the people that were in positions of power, say Joseph Boyden or Michelle or Carrie or, or Mary Ellen mm-hmm. You can have evidence, not just the documented evidence, but the very family, like the family members, it could be brothers and sisters or parents saying, no, they're not native. We've never been native. I don't know Mm -hmm. where they get that from. And people still deny that they're pretending, like they still stick up for them. There's no amount of evidence that you're ever going to have to convince them. I I don't understand the native people who defend this. I don't. I get being sad, hurt, embarrassed for them. Like people at home wouldn't call people out. In the 70s, I remember, oh, it's fine. She's she's well-intended. She's married in. It's embarrassing, right, to point that out. Mm-hmm. People don't want to embarrass people. Again, I understand when it's in community and they are not taking up disproportionate space. But when we're talking about high-powered academics or people in politics, really, I don't understand the Native people in light. I <laughs> I should say, I understand some of them. I don't understand others. I've, there's a couple things I want to say. I have noticed that people who themselves grew up disconnected and are trying to reconnect or deal with that, or maybe they're not even trying to reconnect that. They're still trying to process, like, who's my family? What right do I have to mm-hmm. reconnect? How can I do this? And that's heavy for people. Those people... I understand and I've come to see very clearly why some of them defend these frauds because they conflate their own situation of disconnection with the situation of a fraud. There is no comparison between somebody who was scooped or somebody whose parents went to residential school and got disconnected from their community or moved away for economic reasons or whatever. There is no comparison between that and Michelle Come on. There's no comparison between that and Mary Ellen Trapel-Lafond or Joseph Mm -hmm. Boyden. But if you didn't grow up in community, 
and you don't know the way in which that we define belonging. And this gets to a second thing I want to say. I think there's a different definition in terms of belonging that comes into play. Settlers have a different definition of what it is to be Native than we have our definition. And if you grow up disconnected, you don't know our definitions as well as settler definitions because they have all the cu cultural power, the cachet. They determine the narratives and the stories by which we all have to try to live by. And so if that's your main exposure to Native images, representations, and history, that's what you know. You don't know how we see things and say things, right? And so I think people who were disconnected are caught in this space of really seeing settler imagery and settler stories and buying into their doctrines, even when they want to resist them, because our voices aren't as large. And so they get caught up in that, right? And so I understand where they're coming from, but I really wish they would, they would try not to conflate their stories with people who are making claims about an ancestor 17 generations ago or making claims about an ancestor that doesn't exist at all. Yeah. Uh, so that's part. So getting into that different definitions thing, I think in these immigrant societies, that's how settlers mm -hmm. like to portray these societies as Im largely immigrant societies, they tend to focus on an ancestor somewhere long ago. And then you'll see them making claims, I'm Irish. Are you really? <laughs> like, I've been to Ireland, I've hung out with Irish people. There's a difference yeah. between being Irish and having an ancestor who is from Ireland, right? Yeah. They tend to do that with a lot. So th this is a settler, settler way of figuring identity, right? They make these distant claims. They do the same things with us. But our definitions are quite different. We have nations, we are family and kinship networks. So our definitions conflict. And I would like people to to privilege our definitions and not the definitions of settlers about who we are. Now that gets into a whole other area of uh, conversation, but but it's so important because there, there's so many ironies in all of this. Like we were talking about the red flags and how they try to wear a whole bunch of feathers, or they try to talk about their racist, you know, history, oh, poverty and addictions. But then they also use like you were saying, colonial ideologies around race to somehow justify that they are native. So yeah, my ancestor lived 400 years ago, their blood runs through my veins, that makes me native, no one can take it away from me, or you're genociding me, or you're committing lateral violence. <laughs> I mean, that, that one's lateral violence. I hear that all the time. <laughs> I'm committing lateral violence against a pretendian. Yeah, especially a powerful one when they say it too. I love when they accuse people who are calling out these frauds as being racist or biologically essentialist. I'm like, who's biologically essentialist? You are looking for one ancestor so many generations ago that you had 1,067 other ancestors who were from Europe, various European countries, and you're going to privilege the one out of 1,068? I don't know, that sounds pretty biologically essentialist to me. Living yeah. 17 generations within people who have been constituted as white, with white privilege, who have benefited from the theft of indigenous resources and land, but you're going to focus on that one ancestor back in 1640. Okay, but it's First Nations people who are racist. Yeah, <laughs> literally, I'm, the, I'm sure I'm the biggest racist on the planet, but one of my favorite things you said before, I think it might even been in our previous podcast, about people calling you laterally violent. And your response was, it have to be my lateral for it to be lateral violence. Because yeah. you're yeah. not me and I'm not you. But it yeah. just, that's yeah. the one thing that really bothers me when they say I'm promoting mm -hmm. blood quantum. And I'm like, oh, I'm promoting the literally opposite of that. It's 
We're political nations. We're not races of people. We're political nations that is dependent on relationship and mutuality and responsibility and obligation and living connections. Mm -hmm. It's not, I can point to a grave of an ancestor from 400 years ago who was Mm -hmm. named unknown Indian and now claim an ancestry. That's just so repulsive. Yeah. No, and I can be critical, and I have been, of the fact that I'll use the U.S. terminology of tribal enrollment criteria, right? And we struggle with this. And in my Mm -hmm. own tribe, we still have one quarter blood quantum. That means some of the grandchildren in my family can't get enrolled. We struggle with that. We have especially women, I think, who push back against that. It is a real struggle. And I can be critical of that and still say, we also have informal kinship networks that we need to uphold. And so even while there are children in my, grandchildren in my family who can't get enrolled, they are tall bears. They belong to the community. People know who their moms are, their uncles are, their grandma is. They are not, nobody's telling them that they are not part of our kinship network. Yes, they are currently, some of them disenfranchised from tribal enrollment, and we work on that. And we critique that. And I can do both things. I can critique our tribal enrollment policies while also understanding where they come from. The the, the, the difficult, hard, compromised work it is to survive within a colonial society, dealing with hundreds of years of colonial history and pressure and attempts to eradicate us. We don't just suddenly get to say, I'm throwing off the yoke of colonization. I'm going to govern in this completely decolonized way. Like what kind of fantasy are people living in? We are doing that work within our community and we are still claiming our children. And in my own family, I see how hard it is and the downfall of some of our grandchildren not being able to be enrolled, it does hurt them. For sure it does. And we're attempting to work through that. But that doesn't mean that this is a free-for-all for non-natives to come in and say, you're colonized, you're racist. And while wanting to undermine our existing kinship networks, from which we are attempting to figure out how we can reform and revitalize our governance structures, all while being having this incredible overarching pressure of the biggest superpower in the world. This is what we're up against, right? And this, these kinds of naive ideas that either non-natives or super disconnected people, maybe with an ancestor somewhere have, they have no knowledge of what it's really like to live in the middle of these dynamics in these communities and what we're struggling with, I think. Exactly. And there's just such a fundamental difference. And I know in one of our previous conversations, you re- you talked about the harm they do. So not just that they're taking up places, spaces and voices, but think about someone who is disconnected because of residential schools here in Canada or boarding schools in the US or forced adoptions yeah, in the yeah. last couple of generations who are desperately trying to find records of their ancestors mm-hmm. and reconnect with their communities. Sorry, could you not hear me? I can hear you. Yep. Oh, okay. I thought when you went like that, I was like on mute and I was like, I don't look like no, I'm I was mute. scratching. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And the way that that hurts those people. So the people will, some of the people I've met who were disconnected from the 60 scoop forced adoptions, yeah. they have a lot of insecurity about mm-hmm. their own identity, about their own mm-hmm. connections or lack thereof. And when they see all these pretend claiming to have the same experiences, then getting called out, but they didn't have the same experiences, then they think maybe I shouldn't. Do I have a right to do that? Should I not? And that's what angers me the most about it. Because I can stand for myself, but if their actions as pretendians and appropriating our lived experiences yeah, will exclude or dissuade or cause insecurity into all of the people who were viciously attacked by colonial policy. Mm-hmm. Unconscionable. 
A few of the most radical, assertive, pro-Indigenous nation voices I've seen are people who were disconnected, who were scooped and came back and do really important activist work, frontline water and land defender work, like they inspire me. And so I think people need to look to people like that, who figured out who their families were, try work to get back into their community. And they're the, and the, the few, and they're women too, like these are women too, or like the, they talk about the difficulty, the trauma that they went through being adopted by white people when having to come back. And then they are some of the strongest voices in defense of our communities. That is the other possible avenue to take. And what I think they did, it, it seems to me, is they focused on community. They focused on defending the collective. And through doing that that work supporting the collective, they were able to come back into community. And I think that sounds to me, and that this is what I do as a person who grew up in community, I tend to focus on collectivist work. I don't, it's not that I haven't had my own individual identity stuff. I grew up yeah. as a little native girl in a racist reservation border town, right? I had to grapple with shame and people telling me I was no good, but I don't, I'm not going to spend my time out there on social media crying around about my individual identity stuff. I tend to focus on the work and the people that I have seen that reconnect focus on the work, they focus on the collective. And when we do that, you will figure out those individual things, right? Uh, it, mm -hmm. By focusing on the well-being of the collective more than focusing on your own individual self all the time. And yeah, I take so much inspiration from people like that that have reconnected and do that work. I'm in awe of them and how brave they are. They're so brave. Yes, uh, especially in this context where mm -hmm. the, all these histories of colonization and then all these pretendians making, muddying all the waters, making it worse, refusing to be accountable. And then it causes all this, I don't know, drama or conflict inside of our communities or outside of our communities. And it just, it really, that, so that's the thing that upsets me the most. Plus the other things yeah. you find out a native professor was a pretendian. I don't feel sorry for myself. I feel sorry for the students, yeah, especially grad true. students who worked yeah, under them. Yeah. And then they just feel like, did I even get an education? Was all this time even worth it? Will I ever get a job once they find out I worked under this person? And that is, you, you can't undo that. And yeah. students are just devastated when that happens. I've told people, but I was talking to a colleague of mine, another senior Native Studies person, and I said, I've had grad students come up to me and say, after the pretendian story on their advisor broke, really emotionally distraught and say, I cite they, I cite them in my dissertation. I cite people they told me to cite. I'm influenced by them and their thinking. And I say, this is not that unlike being honest about where you come from in your family, I said, I have to deal with coming from a, a tribal community, family members who do and say things that I don't agree with, right? Mm -hmm. That take political stances I don't agree with, that have done things that I think are actually really ethically problematic. And because we're integrated in a tribal community, sometimes that reflects on me. I've been at meetings where people mm -hmm. find out who I am and who my family is, and they either are like me or they turn around and walk away because of not something I've done, but because of something other people in my family have done. And so we have to reckon with our genealogies, whether they are our kinship genealogies or whether they are our academic genealogies. And I think the way to do that is to be honest about it. 
um, and to re and you might have to recontextualize what your academic advisor did, given the lies that you know about. Like I have to contextualize what my literal tribal relatives do, given some of the ethically problematic things some of them have done. But I have always found that it's better to be open and honest about that. Now I had to see uh, another colleague say, "Everybody's going to be as generous as you about accepting the work of a somebody who's been advised by a pretendian." But I would hope that we would all look at that person as a victim and not complicit in that. Even when they're defending them, I get that sometimes because they're so afraid of losing all the work that they have done as a student of that advisor. They're really afraid. And I think that's legitimate. So I would mm -hmm. just like to say, I don't judge students of people who have done those things. Yeah. I don't like it when you defend them yeah. and scapegoat me or others who are doing yeah. this work. You cannot do that. You can be quiet. You can you can deal with that stuff on personally or within your own community. But it's not the fault of the students that their advisors did those things. But it is, unfortunately, the burden of the students to have to deal with it now and the outfall and to maybe eventually write about what that has meant for their own work. But I think they can, I, can, I cite people that I think have been ethically problematic all the time, who mm -hmm. can be ethically problematic in one yeah. area of their life and also have theorized in ways that I think are important. I just yeah. try to try to think about those two things together, right? And then I think what really makes it worse is when a university who has no business to enter mm. into the fray about whether someone's indigenous or not, they can say someone's done good work. But when, you know, UBC comes out and defends Mary Ellen Terpel Lafond, they're wading into a conversation that they have no business in. And you would think they would have learned from Queen's University disaster, from the Saskatchewan University disaster. Yeah. I'm like, do these universities don't learn? I don't know if they were not paying attention. Oh, it's Saskatchewan. I don't know. Maybe they don't pay attention. They're they are not going to be they're not going to be able to sustain their ostrich position here. They're, the more that they try to sustain it, the more foolish they're going to look in the long term. There are very respectable Indigenous voices and academics who are wanting to hold UBC to account. I would encourage them to listen. Yeah. Listen to their actual connected prominent indigenous faculty on this. If you're a settler, you don't know. And you are, you better listen to the people that are most well-placed to advise you. And if, and the longer they dig in their heels, the more foolish they're going to look. Good luck. Uh, yeah, I know. I think of Queens Good luck. and they just doubled down. And then there was a letter mm -hmm. from a hundred native academics mm -hmm. saying what mm -hmm. you're doing is wrong. So they had to eat crow. But Kim, before we let you go, if you have time, I'd really like to hear a little bit about what it is you're working on now. Here's the website. I know in our previous podcast, we talked about other things, but this is more on the newer side of things. And so for people who haven't heard of this work before, I wonder if you have time to talk about it a little bit. Oh, the Indigenous Science Studies work? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've got a group of faculty, both within the University of Alberta and at other institutions, who are running the summer internship for Indigenous Peoples and Genomics, or SANG Canada. And we accept undergrads, grad students, postdocs, community people every summer, eight to 12 people to come in and do an intensive work around a theme, a genomics research theme that's related to a need that an Indigenous community. And so we're really working hard on that project and collaborating with SANG programs in US, New Zealand, Australia. Sing Mexico just started. We're in conversations, I think, with people from Chile for a Sing Chile. That really is exciting work to me, uh, promoting the work and training Indigenous scientists, but within 
a decolonial worldview? How do you do science in support of communities that is that is dealing with decolonization at all levels? So that's the kind of, I spend a lot of time on that. I'm also doing online education now. So trying to take our Indigenous techno science class global. So an online course that you can enroll in at the University of Alberta as a regular student. But we're also building a platform to make it accessible to lifelong learners as well. And that's, it's a steep uphill, it's an uphill learning curve, right? To do online education. It's not like teaching in the classroom. We're working on that. And a lot of online education opportunities in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. And then I'm working on my next book called Promiscuous Relations. <laughs> so. Whoa, that sounds really interesting. But it's actually, it's going to link from how did I get from DNA to talking about decolonizing sexuality and to talk it, there. I didn't know there was a link, but when I really had spent a lot of time thinking about it, there's a direct link. And I'm so it's really about upholding Indigenous senses relation. And so oh, yeah. anyway, hopefully yeah, that'll no, be done. That's exciting. We'll have to do like a book promo or something when it comes out. Yes, thank you. I know I really need to get it finished. <laughs> <laughs> Don't remind me I'm working on mine. So we'll just pretend I've put that to the side for now. But thank you for taking so much time. I know you talk about this all the time because people keep coming to yeah. you and you're in the media and you probably get sick of talking about it sometimes. But I think it's really important to educate people about the mess that this is and the harm mm -hmm. that it does. This is more than just about one person. And I really respect your opinion. I think it's important to acknowledge the hurt that people have. I have to admit that I've been hurt by some of the recent pretendians and I'm going to have to write about it, but it is what it is. And I think the more that we speak out about it, the more that other people who can't will feel very acknowledged in mm -hmm. their own hurt. And so for everybody who has been listening, you can follow Dr. Kim Tallbear on Twitter, and I will put all of the links in the description box for the podcast. You'll be able to see it online on the YouTube. Obviously, listen to Media Indigena. She's on there all the time, but also because Rick Harp is amazing, and I love his Hilarious. podcast. <laughs> yeah, check out her website and all the work she's doing. And thank you again, Kim. If ever I can do anything for you, make sure you call on me because I'm actually one of the people that mean it. I believe in reciprocity. And okay. to all of the listeners out there, make sure you support Indigenous content creators, academics, authors, and everyone else. The more you share and promote this on social media, the better it helps us. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Leah.